Um, so we will be there today. I do apologize that there aren't uh, going to be notes on the screen, but I trust that you guys will be able to follow along well uh, as we go through this passage. So, um, to start with, we just need a little bit of review of where we've been specifically in Matthew chapter 26. I mean, I, I could go through uh, the whole book of Matthew, but by now we understand some of the major messages that are going through the book of Matthew, that Jesus is the coming king to bring a new kingdom, a heavenly kingdom to this earth, and that we are part of this kingdom, and then the rest of the book tells us all about how that looks, how what to expect, and how we should live. Now, in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 26, uh, we entered that last week, and we started looking at what uh, is really coming down to the final week of Jesus' life. It's, uh, we're getting towards the end before he gives his life, before he dies. We're almost at the end of the book, uh, but then there'll be so much more, uh, obviously, about what happens in the church after he would pass away. But at this point, we are preparing ourselves for the death of Jesus. Now, for us, we know the end of the story, right? So this is uh, just talking to somebody the other day, and they were talking about how much they enjoy reading the last page of a book before you read the rest. And I don't understand that. That ruins everything for me, but some people apparently love to do that. Uh, and But we have the advantage, I guess, in this sense of knowing the end of the book before we even have to read the beginning. We know how it's all going to end. We know what's going to happen to Jesus. But I want us to just make sure that this morning, as we look at this passage, that we don't just take it as what we've seen every first of the month for as long as we can remember, uh, that we uh, that this is a, a real experience, experienced by Jesus' disciples, and, and they don't know the end of the story yet. Even though maybe they should have had an idea, they haven't seen everything happen. And even as people would be reading this, it would be pretty fresh in their minds of what happened here. And I want us to really think that through, that this is not just a, a tradition that has developed over the years in churches, but this was a real moment with Jesus and his disciples as he prepared them for his death. Now, the very first time that the Lord's Supper is celebrated uh, or observed here is what we're going to see today. Jesus is looking forward to his death. Now, of course, as we come together, we look back. But we also will look forward, and we'll get all to that as well as we look at our passage today. But, by way of chapter 26, what we've seen so far. First of all, Passover is coming. The festival is coming in which the people will remember that they were passed over in Egypt in the sense that their firstborns were not killed. We're going to read that passage later today to remind us of what that looks like. But the Passover is coming, and in the midst of that, we saw in chapter 26, verses 1 through 13 that Jesus has predicted his death. Not the first time, won't be the last, but Jesus has predicted his death to the disciples. He has told them that he's going to die. And so we have this picture, we know that things are going to be progressing towards this moment, and we need to keep that in mind, that Jesus has predicted his death, and now we're about to turn and, and see him observe Passover with his disciples, and we're going to see that his prediction of death is going to continue through what he does with them. Uh, we also saw then at the, the last section of chapter 26 and verses 14 through 16, in the midst of Jesus predicting his death, uh, there's some confusion apparently by Judas, who then has started to make arrangements to betray Jesus. We already see ahead that Jesus is going to be betrayed and Judas has started preparations. He's gone to the, uh, to the leaders and he's asked what they will give him to betray Jesus. And so, we have this background in the rest of 26 before Jesus enters the, this opportunity to 
remember and celebrate Passover with his disciples, we need to have all that in the background. Jesus knows he's going to die. He's told his disciples he's going to die. He knows that he's going to be betrayed, and Judas has already started that process, and all of that's going to come to be seen very clearly as we look at our passage today when we get to verses 17 through 30. In 17 through 30. And what we're going to see today in Matthew 26, 17 through 30, is that Jesus turns the focus of the Passover meal to himself. You may see the title, the Passover pivot, and the idea here is that Jesus is going to take something that the disciples know, something that the disciples have experienced, something that they can expect, and he's going to turn it. He's going to turn it right on its head, and he's going to bring it about to be something about himself, to point to himself the ultimate Passover, as we'll look at today. So let's just look at what happens in our passage. So let's read it. Let's go to chapter 26 of Matthew, starting in verse 17, and we will read through verse 30. So 17 through 30. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into a city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, uh, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, "Drink Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day comes when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Then then when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. All right, so that's where we're going to end, and then we're going to see what else happens in the Mount of Olives uh, in just uh, next week. But for now, we're going to be focusing on what happens with Jesus and his disciples on this day that the Lord's Supper is instituted. So let's just look at the the facts. First of all, we see right at the beginning, verses 17 through 19, that Jesus plans to celebrate Passover with his disciples. And I say he planned it because we understand that it says the time has come, uh, the first day of unleavened bread has come, and it's time for them to eat the Passover, the Passover meal, to remember what happened in Exodus. Uh, which we are going to look at as in, in just a few minutes. We're going to read what happened in the book of Exodus that reminds us of why they're even celebrating Passover. Uh, and, and what this, But we see here that Jesus wants to spend the Passover meal with his disciples, his family, and he is planning... To celebrate. This is all in his plan. This is not going to be uh, like, oh, we just happen to be eating at a table and then something crazy is going to happen. Jesus has had this plan. He knows what's going to happen. He is planning it ahead. And so he plans to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. We see that. He says, where will you have prepare us for the Passover? It's like, what are you? okay, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? So he starts planning for that. Uh, he tells us that the disciples should go forward and ask for a certain man. We don't know who this certain man is, but we see that someone is preparing for them to come. Uh, Whoever this certain man is will know Jesus as the teacher. He'll know that his time has come. 
And so we don't even, in this passage in Matthew, we don't really even need to know exactly where they're going, but the understanding is that there is a preparation being made. This is not being taken lightly. Jesus has been planning this and preparing it. He has his disciples go to have it prepared for him. So what's going to happen when we see what Jesus does with the Passover meal? Jesus, this is a planned thing. He is getting ready to do this. He's getting ready to show his disciples something amazing. And then we see that the disciples do follow Jesus' instructions and they get things ready. They do what he asked them to do. And so this is kind of just the introduction. Jesus, it's time for Passover. The disciples are going to spend the time with Jesus. That's how close they were. Think the, the Passover meal was something you shared with family and very close friends. And this is, again, showing that Jesus and his disciples, they have a genuine, deep, and loving relationship. And Jesus is planning to do this. It's being prepared. This is going to happen. And it's going to be happen the way that Jesus has planned it out and wants it to be. And so the disciples do follow what Jesus says because of their love for him, and they get things ready for the Passover meal. And so this is where we start. We start with the disciples and Jesus coming together, and they're ready to observe the Passover meal. Then we get into verse 20, and we start seeing something happen at this moment. This would have been a, a good time. This would have been a celebratory time, a, a time in which they're coming together to remember what God has done in the people of Israel. And it would have, and really, it's not meant to be a time of being down. It's not a downer time. But Jesus enters in verse 20 through 25. And uh, it's interesting. He just comes out. He's reclining with the 12. They're having their meal. And he says, as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. What a turn of events here as Jesus is starting again to make sure the disciples understand that he's about to be betrayed and will be killed. And so he starts by saying, one of you is going to betray me. So Jesus declares that one of his own disciples, one who is sitting there right with him, reclining at the table, celebrating this meal, will betray him. Now we know this is Judas, but I want to remind everybody, again, the rest of the disciples don't know that at this point. I mean, as we read Matthew, there's things said about Judas, but those are things they learned after the fact. Judas looked like any other, any other disciple. He was sitting with them. He was part of the group. He had, he had prepared this Passover. He was with Jesus for the Passover, and nothing would have seemed different to them. Now, for us, we know, right? It's like when Judas enters the scene, you know, if we're watching a movie and the bad guy comes in that nobody else knows is the bad guy, but he has this like really dark theme music that comes in when he walks in. Like we have that in our mind, but that's not what the disciples would have had. He was just one of them. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And so, of course, we see that the disciples are greatly concerned, right? They're very sorrowful. They're concerned because... They just heard that one of their number is going to betray their Lord Jesus, their teacher, their rabbi, the one they followed, the one that they think and know and claim and know is the Messiah. And like, wait, how is somebody going to betray him? And they all start asking the question, well, is it is it going to be me? Like, and there has to be desperation here. None of them are going to think that it's them. But when Jesus says this, they know that it's going to be true. And so they're trying to figure out, well, is it me? And, and the question they're asking is really, it's, it's showing their heart of just concern and sorrow and understanding that they could be the one, but they don't want to be the one. And there's all this chaos. I can just see this chaos erupting at the Last Supper, at the, at the Lord's Supper. As they're, as they're taking Passover, everything's going well. Somebody's going to betray me. And then everybody's like, wait, who's that going to be? It, surely it can't be me. And they're all concerned about that. 
And so we see this happening. And, and so Jesus is already starting to set the scene here at the Passover meal that this is not going to be like every other Passover meal. This is going to be different. After the disciples are concerned and, uh, and it comes down to it, then Judas gets involved here. Uh, but before that, I mean, again, they keep saying, is it I? And Jesus says, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. They had already started the meal. And, and traditionally, they, you would start the Passover meal by dipping vegetables and things in, in, uh, in broth and juice to be able to. It's kind of like an appetizer, but they've already started the meal. But the point is that Jesus is saying that somebody who is actually sharing this meal with me right here, that is willing to eat the same food that I'm eating to be to dip it in the same bowl that I am dipping it, that's the person that's going to do it. And at this point, Judas, as we're told by Matthew, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now, it's interesting at this point what happens here. But before Judas says this, we actually see that Jesus pronounces judgment on Judas. So in verse 25, we understand it's Judas, but earlier on, what does it say? He, Jesus says, the Son of Man goes, it is written of him. In other words, somebody's going to betray him, and this is what's supposed to happen. But then Jesus says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus says there is judgment coming to the one who would betray him. This is not just a, tri- a, a, a little trite issue. This is huge. Jesus says there's going to be judgment, and we know that it's going to be on Judas... And he says, listen, I, this has to happen in order for me to fulfill what I have to fulfill. I need to be betrayed because that's what prophecy says and that'll lead me to my death. But that doesn't mean that the person who's going to betray me is going to get out of this. And he says there will be judgment for the decision that Judas is making. And then Judas at that point enters and says, is it I? I don't think his tone was going to be the same as the rest of the disciples. The rest of the disciples were purely confused, scared to death that it could be them. But Judas, as he asked this question, I think there's more of an understanding in his heart, obviously. He knew that he was the one. Part of this, I wonder if it wasn't a test for Jesus. It almost makes it feel like he's saying, well, I wonder if I, if I ask Jesus if he really knows it's me. Because the judgment was just said. So Judas has to be wondering, well, does he know it's me? Am I the one that shouldn't have been born? So is it I? Rabbi, he calls him teacher. By the way, the rest of the disciples say, and I don't know if this is a huge deal or not. Some people say it is, some people say it isn't. But the rest of them say, is it I, Lord, Master? But Judas says, is it I, Rabbi, teacher? Seems though he doesn't have the same type of relationship. I think that's fair to say, seeing in the fact that he's about to betray Jesus. And so Judas, who sat with Jesus, who was in a relationship with Jesus, who was at the table at one of the most intimate times you can have with friends and family, all of this, and yet, in the midst of this, is still planning on betraying Jesus. Ask Jesus if it's him, and Jesus says, you have said so. This is basically Jesus' way of saying, if you say so, yes. I mean, he's basically saying yes without saying yes. So Judas knows that Jesus knows that it's him. It doesn't seem like the rest of the disciples know or hear this happening. In the book of John, we'll actually see some other things happening and all of what's going on here. Uh, and it, it seems that Judas leaves the leaves at this point. Most likely, he leaves the meal to go find who he needs to find so he can betray Jesus. But the rest of the disciples still have no clue who it is. I don't understand why. I don't know if they were just blind. I don't know, understand if they thought Judas had a better uh, job to go do. We're not exactly sure, but... In any case, we, nobody else seems to still know what's happening, because if they did, they probably would have stopped Judas from doing what he was going to do. 
And yet, he's about to betray Jesus, which we'll look at in just a, a few weeks. And so, we get then to the point where Jesus has already made this meal something different than they expected, as they've been talking about who's going to betray him. And then, he takes the opportunity at this point, and this is where we're going to really focus our time this morning, uh, and that is, he takes the opportunity then to take the Passover meal that the disciples have been used to celebrating and, and remembering all of their lives, he's going to change it. He's going to help them to see that what they're celebrating in Passover, there's something greater. There's something better. There's something more powerful coming than just what they're celebrating through Passover. But at this point, I think it is important for us, and we could have maybe done it earlier, but I, I want to go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 12. Uh, and Exodus chapter 12, uh, I don't know if it'll be on the screen or not, but if not, just turn to it and we'll read together. Exodus chapter 12 is the institution of the Passover. When the Pass- well, This is what the Passover meal was meant to remember. And so I think we need to have that understanding before we jump into how Jesus takes what was known and turns it and pivots it towards himself. And so we need to see what exactly happened in the book of Exodus. I don't want to take it for granted that all of us here know exactly what happened. Many of you I know do. But we're just going to read what happens in the book of Exodus chapter 12 and read what happens in the Passover and what Moses says the people should do. And then we'll just make some general understandings of how Jesus takes this and turns it to himself. So chapter 12 of the book of Exodus, let's read together. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you at the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make uh, your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep and from the goats, and you will keep it to the fourteenth day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted in the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head and its legs and its inner parts." And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and I will, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall or to, or to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on these days, but what everyone needs to eat that, that may be alone prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. 
In the first month of the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread." Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and he will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, and the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. All right, so that is our reminder of what the Passover meal was meant to be. The Passover meal was to remind the people of Israel that they were to remember this for all generations, to remind them that on that last plague when they were still slaves in Egypt, God freed them from bondage. And as he did that, he killed the firstborn of the Egyptians but spared the Jewish people because they obeyed what he told them to do, sacrificed a lamb and put the blood on their doorposts. And as they did that, he passed over them. And so that's why the Jewish people come together to remember this. That's why Jesus and his disciples are remembering the Passover. They're remembering the unleavened bread. They're remembering the blood of the lamb that would be shed and put on the doorpost so that they would be saved. Don't miss the, the, the theme of salvation and redemption that is seen in the Passover meal. This is why it's a celebration. They remember the freedom they've been given. But we see Jesus in verses 26 through 30, back in Matthew chapter 26, taking some of those elements that they had always used to remember what had happened, and now he's going to use those to point to himself and to point to the future. Here's what really, I think, happens as Jesus has this meal with his disciples. Jesus takes the emphasis of the Passover meal from the past to the present future, that what once was that they were celebrating and remembering, now something greater was coming and would be very soon. And Jesus is pivoting it to the point where he's going to remind the disciples that what's really important is all about him. Not about what happened in the past, but what's about to happen in the future. So we see, first of all, Jesus, as he comes together, verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. So he took this unleavened bread that was something they would have always eaten, and it reminded them 
of the haste that they were going to have to leave Egypt. They didn't have time to let their bread rise, and so it was unleavened bread that they could take with them as soon as they were freed. And they were remembering that that bread, and Jesus takes this bread, and after blessing it, uh, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now this blessing would have been Jesus simply thanking God, God of the universe, for the bread that he has given. And as he does that, then he says to his disciples, Take, eat, this is my body. And at this point, things have changed. This wouldn't normally have been said in a Passover meal. Well, here, as we eat this bread, remember, it's my body. Jesus is making a very, very strong connection here. Think about what the unleavened bread reminded the people of, and that was that they would be given freedom. It also, in this sense, he talks about his body. And we know in other passages he says it will be broken. My body will be broken for you or given for you. Here he just says, this is my body. But he's saying, this is the sacrifice. I am the sacrifice. Notice here that they're eating bread. They haven't eaten the lamb yet. We actually aren't even told about the lamb in this passage. I think that's because the Lamb is with them. We know throughout the New Testament that Jesus is called the Lamb, uh, the Lamb of God. We see it in Revelation. We see it in other places. We understand that Jesus is that Lamb. But as He has this meal with His disciples, He wants to remind them that He, His body, is going to be the sacrifice that is going to be given. He is going to give Himself. Just as that Lamb had to give itself, so will Jesus. And I think part of this... He talks about himself being the bread, and I don't think the disciples should have been confused. I want to go to the book of John. This is not in when he's taking communion with his disciples, but I think John 6 tells us a lot about Jesus, and when he talks about bread, what might be in his mind. John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51. John 6, 48 through 51. And you all remember, this is Jesus after he fed lots of people, but then he goes and he talks about how he is the bread of life. And and I want to read one little section in here, verses 48 through 51, and what he says. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Very interesting. Now, as we get to Matthew, and which would have happened after Jesus said all these words about himself being the bread of life, which there's a whole lot more you could read here in John chapter 6. But what he says is, the eternal life that he's going to give is going to come through the bread, which is his flesh. That he would give himself, his very flesh. This is another point out that he is going to die. And he's telling the disciples as they meet together, as we eat this, you need to remember that this is about me. This is my body. I'm giving my body for you. I'm gonna, I'm the sacrifice. I am the one. I'm giving my flesh so that people can have eternal life. And so, from a reminder of unleavened bread to the coming death of Jesus is how Jesus turns this. And then he moves on after talking about the bread and he takes the cup and he had given thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We see that now Jesus pivots from a reminder of salvation, which that's what we we remember, the salvation that God brought to the Israelites in Egypt. But then he says, 
the blood is going to be shed by him. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whereas salvation from Egypt was what the blood of the lamb in the Passover was meant to do, salvation from the death of the firstborn, salvation and redemption from Egypt itself, what Jesus says now is that the thing that that my blood does, it doesn't just protect you from the firstborn dying, it doesn't just protect you from Egypt, it protects you, it forgives you for sin. That the shedding of blood would remove sin is something seen throughout Old and New Testament. And Jesus says, it is my blood that's going to be shed. See, they drink this cup as this cup would remind them of the, the salvation that they received from the people of Egypt. Jesus says, the true salvation that I bring is so much greater. It's so much greater than the bondage that you were in in Egypt. You are in bondage of sin, and I will give you forgiveness through my blood, again, through his death, that he would shed his blood and forgive our sins. And he says this to the disciples. This would be new for them. This would not be something that would normally be said at a Passover meal. And so we see Jesus is is pivoting from salvation in the past to salvation now through his blood, but the salvation from sin. I'm not going to go there this morning just because of time's sake, but in Exodus chapter 24, we actually see when when Moses instituted the covenant with God's people between God's people and God, he sprinkled them the blood of a sacrifice. And so when Jesus says something about a new covenant, that the blood of the covenant, he's saying something new has come. Just as the blood ratified the covenant between God's people and God in Moses' day, my blood is going to bring a new covenant, a new relationship with the people of God today. And we've talked about this in several different times as we preach through many different passages. But the new covenant has been foreseen through all the Old Testament. Now Jesus says that new covenant is here. That comes through my blood. No longer is it the blood of animals, of lambs, of sacrifices of that. I am the ultimate sacrifice because I am going to shed my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus wants the disciples to be focused on Him. No longer focused on the past. Not that that's a bad thing to remember what God has done in the past, but he's saying something greater and better is here and coming. And then finally, and I think sometimes we miss this, we see that Jesus pivots the Passover meal from a reminder of the past to a hope for the future. So he does that very interestingly. He says in verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Seems like just a, he's basically saying, oh, okay, well, I'm not going to be able to drink wine again until I, you know, so sorry. That's so much more what he's saying here is, listen, I will drink this again, but not until we are in the ultimate kingdom. And when I'm in, with you in my father's kingdom. And Jesus is saying, yes, I'm about to die. I'm going to shed my blood, but one day it will all be new. I will be in my my Father's kingdom. We'll be together. It is something that when we take communion, when they took Passover, it was not just to look back, but it's also to look forward. That Jesus, although he was going to die, would one day be back with them in the kingdom of God. And that is a future that they could look forward to. That is a future that we could look forward to. And I think Paul understood this Actually, in the book of 1 Corinthians, where we always go each uh, each month when we do communion, not always, but most of the time, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see that I think Paul makes this connection very clear. 
as he's telling the Corinthian church how to observe the communion meal, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, as he does that, uh, he says, you know, remember Christ's body, remember Christ's blood. And he says, verse 26 of chapter um, 11, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. But then he adds these three words, until he comes. We know that Jesus was about to die, but we also know, because we do know the end of the story, that Jesus would not stay dead, that he would rise again three days later, that death and sin could not hold him. We're about to celebrate that in just a month as we come into Easter, but we remember that every day we come together, that Jesus didn't stay dead. So, yes, he's telling his disciples, I'm going to shed my blood, my body is going to be given as a sacrifice, but we know that he will be back to life. He's not a dead God, but a living God that will one day return, and he's going to set all things right. He's going to return and set this whole world right. It's going to be recreated. We're going to be in his kingdom with him, and as we celebrate communion and the Lord's Supper together, it's not just looking back, but it's also looking to the future. It's not just looking back to what God has done, but it's looking forward to what God is going to do. You see, because it's pretty depressing if all communion becomes is like a funeral, where it's just a sad time of remembering Jesus' death. It's so much more than that. It's remembering the sacrifice that God has given through the body of Jesus and the blood that he shed, but it's also then to pivot us to remember that he's coming back. Keep in mind, just a couple chapters ago in Matthew, we talked about what it looks like that Jesus is coming back and how to be prepared for that. And Jesus is still saying, my kingdom is coming. You're going to be with me. Even in the midst of what's about to happen, the future is bright. And so I believe that Jesus is really using this opportunity as he sits with his disciples, as they are close together and doing something that families and good friends would do, And they're remembering the past, and that's all good. But Jesus says, there's something greater, and it's me. I'm right here. My body, my blood, and the future of my kingdom. It's about that. And he wants his disciples to understand that they're no longer living in the past, but they're right there living in the future with real forgiveness that is being given by him. Like I said, we've got to understand, none of this is normal. Like... We think it's normal because we've always read this passage and we know what Jesus said. But put yourself in the the shoes of the disciples. Jesus is taking something that they were so familiar with, changing it completely to say, it's not just about what happened, it's about what's going on now, what's going to happen in the future. Whether they fully understood it at this point, I'm going to say probably not. They will at some point. But Jesus is trying to be very clear with them that true salvation is only through him. Not through the blood of a lamb on a doorpost. That Passover lamb did spare them from the firstborn death. It spared them ultimately from slavery in Egypt. Saved them from that. But as Jesus already says, the forgiveness of sins comes through him and him alone. And so the focus of Passover now should be on him. Not on a lamb. Not on Egypt, but on himself. And I think there's things we can learn from that as well, and we'll get to that in just a moment. So I have three questions as we conclude this morning, and then we'll take communion together. First question is simple. Have you received the true Passover? Jesus basically says, and he, I mean, this is true throughout Scripture. I don't have, I didn't have the time to show you all the connections throughout all of Scripture, how Jesus is the Passover. Think about it. Death 
was coming to the firstborns. Death was coming and people were saved by the blood of a lamb and Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He brings forgiveness through his blood. Jesus is the one. If you want to be saved from death, and we're not just talking about physical death, if you want to be saved from sin, if you want to be saved from death that is a result of sin, the separation that happens in the relationship you have with God, if you want that to change, if you want that to pivot, the only way that's going to happen is by trusting in and believing in the true Passover. Not eating a meal, as we're about to you know, take a, a wafer and some juice and remember what Jesus has done and look forward to what he's doing and what he's going to do. We're about to do that, but that's not what saves us. That What saves us is faith in the Passover. Listen, what saved the people of Israel from the the death that would come, what saved them from that was not that there was a magical property uh, in the lamb or the blood that they... It was because God chose to spare them out of his mercy because they obeyed him in faith. Because it didn't make any sense. How is just putting blood on our door and eating a lamb going to stop death? That doesn't make any sense. But it wasn't about the blood there. It was about God. It was about what he was going to do. His mercy and grace, and they simply had to believe that what he said, if they did it, they would be saved. And that's where we're at today. If we want to know the true Passover, if we want to be passed over, uh, and so therefore sin and death will not touch us, ultimately, and we want eternal life, it's only going to come through Jesus, his grace, his mercy, and trusting that what he said is true and believing in him and having faith that if we believe in Jesus, we trust in Jesus, we turn to Jesus, if we do these things, that is that is not of our own doing, but is of God's doing, and it's he that saves us, not a cup of juice, not a wafer, not coming to church, but he saves us. And my question for all of us today is, have we truly received the true Passover, who is Jesus? Have we looked to Him for ultimate salvation, or are we looking at something else? If you haven't received the Passover, if you haven't received Jesus and said, Jesus, I want to trust you and turn to you, then today is the day to do that. You can celebrate the true Passover today. Don't wait any longer. Second question I want to ask, and I didn't talk too much about this. I don't want to focus on it too much because... Honestly, this passage isn't about Judas. It's about Jesus. But I think it's fair to ask, are we living like Judas? Because if we think about it, what was Judas? Everything looked good. Everything looked right. He was sitting at the table with everyone else. All the while, he's planning on betraying Jesus. Living a lie. And so I just want to ask the question. I hope none of us here are living a lie. We're here, at, we're here on Sunday mornings. We come together. We say all the right things. We talk about Jesus. We maybe even, you know, read our Bibles and, and do everything we're supposed to do. And, and on the outside, looks like we have a great Christian life that we're following Jesus when really we know it's not true. We know that deep down in, in our hearts, we don't really trust in Jesus. We're not really living in a way that is pleasing to Him. That was Judas. And he had the audacity to ask Jesus, Is it me? But I think all of us need to ask that question sometimes. Make sure that we are truly following Jesus and ask, Lord, is it me? 
I hope that all of us have a true faith in Jesus and it's not fake, but it's always possible. It's always possible for people to be living a fake life, and I pray and hope that's not you. But if it is, it's not too late. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Him. And finally, getting into our third question, and that's where we're going to kind of go into our time of communion together. And the kids will be joining us in just a moment, so uh, don't be too distracted. But I want to ask this question as we are about to take communion together. Have we forgotten what communion, what the Lord's Supper is all about? I'm afraid that because communion has become such a ritual, not only in our church, but, I mean, it's even more ritualistic in other churches, but, like, it's honestly even a concern to me that people were upset because we didn't do communion the first week of the month. Because it's not about when you do it. It's not about the exact way we do it. It doesn't matter if it's in one of these gross wafer cup things or whether it's in uh, silver platters that are being passed around or whether we're coming up front and people are dipping bread into juice or whether we're using wine. Only happened once. Or uh, if we're if we're using juice, like... I don't want to get caught up in trying to figure out, well, how does it, how is it supposed to work? Like, and we need to do it at a certain time and a certain time of the day and, and it's just become, okay, I get to eat a wafer, I get to drink some juice, we talk about Jesus, but I don't know. I, I wonder if sometimes we've forgotten what communion's all about. It's all about Jesus. It's not about a ritual. This does nothing to save us. It does nothing to make us more holy. It does point us to the one who does save us. It points us to the one who does make us holy. It points us to Jesus. But we've got to be careful that when we come together to take communion, that it's not just another thing we do. It's not just what we do the first week of the month. It's not just we think that this juice or this wafer somehow is going to change our relationship with God. We've got to remember that this is all about Jesus. Jesus reminded his disciples as they came together for Passover, this is not just a ritual. This is not just a a remembrance, but this is about Jesus. It's about what he's doing, what he's going to, what he's done for us. It's what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. That he is coming again. And we look forward to that. So today, in just a moment, we're going to take communion together. And as we do take communion together, as we take the Lord's Supper together, Don't treat it as just another thing we do, but truly take time to think about Jesus. Truly take time to thank Jesus for His body, for His blood, for the forgiveness of sins. If you're not a believer today, if you do not know Jesus, then don't take this, because this is to remind us of Jesus' salvation. If you have not received Jesus' salvation, then it's just a random cup of juice and a wafer. And trust me, it's not worth it. For many reasons. But the point here is, As Christians, we come together. And as Christians, we remember what Jesus has done. Yes, it's about remembrance. We talk about that all the time. But it's not just a funeral. It's a time to remember. It's a time to thank. And it's a time to look forward to what Jesus is doing right now and what he'll do forever. That he's coming back again. So today as we take communion, I hope that those are the things that are in our mind as we come together to take these things. So I will turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because Paul reminds us as a church that we need to be doing this together 
There's lots that he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, again, outside of what we're talking about today, about how important it is to take this together as the body of Christ. And we're just going to take some time to remember Jesus, to focus on Jesus, and to look forward to Jesus coming back as we have this time together. So before we even open any of these elements, I want us to take some time right now. Just want to take some time for you to take an opportunity to thank Jesus for who He is. Thank Him for what He's done. Thank Him for what He's going to do. Take your opportunity to just reflect and thank Him and focus on Him. Just for a few minutes as we're quiet, just to focus on Jesus. And if there's anything in your life, if there's anything in your life that is causing you to wonder if you might be a Judas, if we're going back to that, like to, to talk to Jesus about that. This is our opportunity. Talk to Jesus, thank Him for what He's done, look forward to what He's going to do. So let's just take a few minutes to do that, and then we will take these elements together. Let's just take a few minutes.